0: I'm your host, Nia Schachter. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a bit gender nebulous, a term that I made up and you can use if you like it. I'm an intimacy coordinator for TV and film, a boundary guide for individuals and couples, and a consent educator. My interest in this work is mostly in consent, gender, and power dynamics. I offer Zoom classes live and for download through my website, and private consent lessons and boundary sessions too today I'm talking to Corey. Corey is a full spectrum doula, sex educator, and childbirth educator in training. They support birthing people and beyond in finding empowerment at the intersection of evidence-based information and personal intuition. I love that description. Hi, Corey. <laughs> thank you. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for doing this with me. It's, um, always really nice to get someone um, like specifically referred by someone who I really respect and admire. So the fact that you came from Lena um, just was like an immediate yes for me.
1: She's the best. I I love, love everything she's about. Me too.
0: Um, So I want to hear about how you got into this. Um, we just touched on it and I think it's really valuable for you to share it, um, with everyone listening. And I also am just sort of struck by how similar our paths have been.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'll start at the, I would say the very beginning. Um, so I came to New York, uh, pursuing a degree in musical theater. Um, and, I got about three quarters of the way through that program and after spring break, my freshman year I dropped out I hated it um, it just was not the right program for me it was not the right college experience that I wanted for myself um, and um, I finished out that year and then basically just kind of um, uh, took random classes throughout my sophomore year just to kind of figure out like okay you know I've I thought that I've wanted to do theater for my entire life and now I don't. So what, who am I? What do I want to do? Like I was trying to figure it out. And then I took um, a really monumental class for me called media and identity with this amazing professor. Um, And I started to get really interested in the intersection of media and gender and sexuality um, and how all of those things impact each other. So I eventually um, entered into one of the schools at NYU that was basically a build your own major program. And Gallatin. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. The Gallatin school of individualized study. Mm -hmm. Um, And my concentration was, I basically studied, how media and technology have influenced and impacted the way that we talk about and understand gender and sexuality, and specifically studying that through the lens of pop Mm -hmm. culture and pop culture objects. So film, TV, social media, um, music, uh, advertising, you know, really anything that we consider just, you know, um, mass media nowadays. And um, I just, I just totally fell in love with all of this information. It was, all it was so interesting. I was so um, just taken away f- by like queer theory and gender theory and be, like realizing, oh, gender isn't real. Like reading <laughs> Judith Butler and like Jack Halberstam and like all these like really cool authors that I just had never been exposed to before. And it really was, was life-changing for me. Um, and then my senior year in college, I started working under, as a personal assistant for a professor of human sexuality, um, and sex researcher. And, um, she did a lot of work around teaching people, like a lot of education around non-monogamy BDSM and like, and like the science behind it. And like the psychology and stuff behind that. Um, and so I really got kind of introduced to my local community here in Brooklyn. Um, I would help uh, organize her events, do her social media. And so I really just got connected to a lot of really cool people. Um, and I really loved the sex positive community here. I really loved, you know, the people that I was meeting and the, the spaces that I was, um, inhabiting. And, um, after working with her for a while, um, I kind of branched out and started my own kind of sex education coaching business. Um, I do teach public workshops, do private one-on-one coaching with individuals, couples, throuples, et cetera. Um, and, um, and yeah, and just really started to do that. And, um, it wasn't until, um, at this point it's been, I want to say it was like late 2019, early 2020 that I started, um, I started working with some people who were in the postpartum period with my coaching practice and they were, um looking for guidance and support in rediscovering their sexuality after having a baby and redefining their relationships with their partner um, you know, with having a child in the house now. And so I really loved doing that work and um, I really enjoyed connecting with people at such a monumental life transition and um, then you know how the thing happens when you're like considering, you know, doing something and then you start noticing it everywhere. Well, I started (laughs) noticing that there are pregnant people everywhere all around me. Um, And then eventually one of my very close friends um, told me that she was pregnant. And I felt like that was the sign that the universe was giving me to be like, yes, do the doula training. So I signed up for a doula training at doula trainings international um, to become a full spectrum doula and full spectrum doulas for those who don't know are, um, you know, mainly people associate doulas with birth and with postpartum. And that is a lot of the work that I do. Um, But full spectrum doulas also support people through events like abortion or um, miscarriage and loss. Um, I personally supported people through like gender transition Um, like that to me is part of my definition of full spectrum. Um, So really like it's it's really any kind of reproductive or gender related health event or time or transition. Because um, we all need support, and especially during times in our lives when we're so vulnerable. And so um, I attended my very first birth um, almost a year ago, and I've been doing it ever since. And we'll probably be attending a birth in the next
0: 48 hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. Any minute, perhaps. It I sounds know, like. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So the stuff that, Is so parallel to my story is that I also I studied I went to New York to study theater at Sarah Lawrence, and ended up dropping out after my freshman year, having like a you know a realization over spring break that I didn't know what I was doing in college and why I was there, and my parents had made it very clear that I shouldn't waste their money. Sarah Lawrence is a very expensive college. So it was (laughs) NYU. Yeah. So and I basically pitched it to them that way. I was like, I am wasting your money because I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, And very similar to Gallatin, at Sarah Lawrence, you don't have to choose a major. You can concentrate is what they call it, but you don't have to. And that was really appealing to me as like a decision phobic person. (laughs) (laughs) But what it turned out, like my experience of it was actually that that's a really good uh, educational philosophy for someone who knows exactly what they want to do and can't find a program for it. Yeah. As opposed to my situation, which was that I was just kind of like, I didn't want to make a choice. Um, And so I ended up taking a year off, moving to Austin, Texas, and taking a few like adult education courses at UT Austin, trying some stuff. I took a class on the sociology of intimacy or something like that. Um, Super cool. It was very cool. And then I also did a history, like a US history class that was um, specifically about rock and roll. It was like a rock and roll history class um that counted as like a U.S. history credit and then I ended up transferring to Columbia um, and that was really good for me because Columbia really has a pretty rigid set of requirements and so I was forced out of my comfort zone a little bit whereas at Sarah Lawrence it was just kind of like you know why would I take what what would happen at Sarah Lawrence is like the class like the science classes that I was interested in taking I felt really isolated and alienated in them because I was a really like beginner intro science student and because none of them were required typically the people taking those classes were like pretty advanced yeah whereas at Columbia you could take like an intro and most of the people in the class were just sort of loosely interested instead of wanting to focus on it yeah anyway um yeah. And then I also ended up uh, like studying other things, finding something else, and ending up in this sort of bizarre, like, you know, gender, sexuality, relationship, um, relationships, intimacy space, and sort of like building my own patchwork career very similarly. And your emphasis on pop culture also really resonates with me because, as I said, I have a, another podcast called Consent Chasers where we look at consent through the lens of pop culture. Um, and the ways that we learn things like codependency and like what, you know, what you're supposed to do if you are of a certain gender and what relationships are supposed to be like and how much sex you should be having and all these things. Um, and I've been watching, re-watching the OC, kind of like mining it for really toxic dam- toxic damaging narratives about how I'm supposed to be in the world. So um, all of this is really, really resonating with me. Um, I want to ask you about, Um, the sort of like intersection here between BDSM and kink and birth work? Yeah.
1: Um, I think um, it's interesting because there is a a point um, not too long ago, but um, there was a point in my doula career where I was kind of trapped in this like, like way of thinking was that I was like, I'm becoming a doula or like I'm a doula in training. Like I'm not yet a doula, even though at that point I had already attended, I think like two births or three births Um, and someone said to me, like you have been a doula your whole life. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, like then I started like going back and thinking about all of the ways that I have been a doula And
0: when you say doula, do you mean like assisting through transitions?
1: Yeah. Like, like in the broader sense of the term, someone who provides support, someone who holds space, Mm. um, you know, someone who can, you know, be a source of comfort or information or, you know, really whatever, whoever, you know, whatever they need really. Um, And so, you know, when I kind of heard that, I started thinking about all of the ways that I have acted in a, in the role of a doula. And I find that i honestly found that a lot of the way that I approached my coaching work, um, or the way that I approached my education work specifically with kink and BDSM was in the role of a doula, um, and providing, you know, it's harder to say evidence-based information. Cause like the evidence in that realm is like, you know, iffy, but, um, <laughs> but you know, like reliable information from, uh, trusted sources, um, you know, holding space for people's you know, deepest, darkest kinks or th- th- that they consider to be deep and dark. Um, whereas I'm just like, yeah, rock on, <laughs> like you do. <laughs> um, and um, and yeah, I think, I think there's uh, it's funny because Lena and I have talked about this a couple of times just how doulas can be used in the kink space in the form of like what I used to call a scene buddy. Now I kind of say like a kink doula or a scene doula or something, but I use the term doula like so much now. Um, but like the idea of having a scene buddy, which I have used before in, um, in kink scenes um, and a lot of uh, BDSM players use this, especially in like um, the context of like conventions or like events where there is more like pickup play happening or more just like play with people that you haven't met before. Um, and, um, I've had it where like, I was doing a scene with someone who I was relatively new to playing with and I had a friend like there and we were all at like a, we were at a public club. So like, it was like a, we went together and like, I was doing pickup play with this person and like me having that friend there to like watch the scene and contribute their energy to it. And also like give me aftercare. Um, you know, just, just to really just be present and to make sure that my boundaries were being respected and that my desires were being met and vice versa. Um, It was really great. And it really allowed me to fully surrender into that scene. Um, And I, and I see it happening, like I said, like a lot in, um, in like conventions or like specific contexts like that. Um, But I think especially now with COVID, the fact that those things aren't necessarily happening. And there's also a lot of people I feel like who in the last year or so have recently discovered kink or have like taken this time to actually explore their interests and their desires and, and all of this. Um, and now there's so many people that are like chomping at the bit to actually do it and to get out there and meet people and 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 do it in a safe way. Um, and I think you know just posing that idea that yeah, you can have your friends or your partners or whoever you trust, um, or even hire a professional, you know, to do it, hire a doula, hire hire a sex worker, or dominatrix or whoever, um, someone who is, you know, well-versed in consent um, and communication and negotiation and all of those things, um, have them be your support person, be your buddy. Um, I think especially for, for more intense kind of play, um, like for CNC scenes, um, uh, like consensual non-consent scenes, um, having someone there. Like you, I, I say this to a lot of people. I'm like, you actually probably won't want the person who just topped to you for that scene to be the person providing you immediate aftercare. Um, like your body and your brain is going to need a little bit of like a mm-hmm. come down moment before you might want to reconnect with that person. So that's why I really like, that's a perfect example of where I think having like a scene doula or a scene buddy, um, can be really great because you're going to need immediate aftercare. Just that just might not be the right person to do it. And so having someone else there who was contributing their energy to the scene, but not necessarily physically contributing to the scene can be really helpful because it can give you that time to cool down and wind down and then also facilitate a reconnection as equals with whoever was the person topping you.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a really cool idea. I have a feeling that several people listening are going to want to put that into practice. I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, uh, one of the things that Lena shared with me when she recommended that I talk to you was about your, um, like really, complex and nuanced uh understanding of like the relationship between um or the the significance of pain in both the bdsm and kink space and in birth so i'd really like to hear about that
1: yeah um i obviously you know like I, I use different analogies with different clients and everything like that, but with the clients who I do know are kinky or Mm -hmm. have experience with BDSM, um, the parallel that I like to make and specifically in talking about an unmedicated labor, some people call it a natural labor, a natural birth. I believe all birth is natural, but so this is be without an epidural. So you're feeling all of the sensation. Um, but when I'm comparing an unmedicated labor, um, and you know, making a a parallel. I use the parallel of like an impact scene, and like like a long impact scene where it's like I want to mark. I really want to go deep, deep, deep into subspace, um, like that kind of scene. And the parallels are really similar. Um, it's almost you know, like in in an impact scene. Obviously, it's like you can't just start. You know, if we're using a scale of of zero to ten, you cannot. You can't just start at the nine or ten. You know, there has to be a gradual workup. And in the context of labor, that also happens where very rarely, you know, your body will just immediately go into like full-blown active labor. What normally happens, especially for first-time parents, is that you're in early labor for quite some time and early labor usually feels like menstrual cramps. Um, it's not, you know, what we see in the movies, spoiler alert, what we see in the movies Mm. and pop culture about birth is very, very off. No way. (laughs) Pop culture has done a terrible job of depicting birth because birth takes such a long time and movies don't have that time to actually show how freaking long it takes to birth a baby. Um, so that's like one of the criticisms there, but, um, you know, it's the, the processing the pain is really similar because um, when you're you know, getting through the pain, that's not coping, you know, that's just, you're just getting through it. you're waiting for it to end. And if you're in an impact scene and you're experiencing the pain and you're just waiting for it to end, that's not, you're not embodied, you're not coping, you're not actually experiencing the, the positive effects that that scene is supposed to you know, invoke and i think with labor it's really similar like people will call it like going into labor land which is essentially <laughs> just subspace for labor wow and you um there's a lot of like visualization techniques that can be used in both contexts in both labor and in like any sort of long painful um scene um you know like one thing i i've worked with with clients is like Okay. What color is the contraction? You know, what, what texture does it look like? How big is it? How small is it? Where do you feel it in your body? How does it move? Is it really slow? Is it viscous? Is it fuzzy? Is it soft? Is it hard? You know, like really trying to give, um, you know, a visual context to this, because when we're able to do that, then we're able to do something with it. Then if so, you know, if, if the pain that you're experiencing is like, a red ball and it's this red ball of energy. What would it look like if the next time we experienced that pain, what if we turned that ball blue? What would that feel like? How would that feel in our body? What would happen if we moved that ball and moved it to a different part of our body? Or what if, what happened if we like took that big ball and broke it up into tiny pieces and let it disperse throughout different parts of our body? Um, so that's like an example of like, I think visualization techniques that can be used in both contexts. Um, and I think it's something that, especially for the more experienced players, more experienced masochists, we kind of do that naturally. Like at least for me, I'm a huge masochist. I love pain. It's beautiful. Um, and it's like, I often say it's the only time that I'm really able to drop into a truly meditative space. Um, I have ADHD, so my brain does not go quiet very often. It's very loud in here and there's elevator music constantly happening. <laughs> um, and so, but doing an impact scene with someone who I trust, um, that is a time where I'm actually able to completely shut off my brain and just focus on this one piece of stimuli that I'm receiving. And what I naturally do with it is I move it into different places in my body and I use my breath to be able to move it. Um, and it's the same thing in labor, you know, breath is like the most powerful thing that someone can have and use in labor. And if you're not breathing, like, like finding abdominal breathing, like that slow embodied breathing, that's like your home base. And I think that's your home base too. In, in any, any kind of masochistic scene as well. Like if you, if you can't find that grounding space in your breath, it's going to be really hard to move anywhere in that scene. And it's the same thing in labor. Um, and yeah, it all comes down. Um, it all comes down to like, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the gate control theory of pain. Mm -hmm. Um, it's basically the gate control theory of pain essentially says like our body has a finite number of, of nerve endings of pain receptors that can process sensation and pain. And so in labor, if you are experiencing a contraction or a wave or a surge, however you want to frame it. Um, you know, if you're not doing anything else, all of your pain receptors are going to be focusing on this one piece of stimuli. Um, and that can make it really intense, but if we introduce another piece of stimuli, so like a common tool that's used in labor is like a comb and you basically take a comb and you squeeze it in your hand and you, and for, for the needle side to be on your palm and you squeeze it really, really hard so that you're feeling, you know, it is, it is painful but not nearly as painful as the contraction that you're feeling. And so the idea is that some of those pain receptors that would have been focusing on the contraction are now actually focusing on this other piece of stimuli in your hand with a comb, and that's controlled by you. And so, Mm. you know, let's say if there's, you know, a hundred pain receptors, if 30 of those are focused on the comb, then there's only 70 of those that can actually focus on the contraction. So it actually will lessen the intensity of it or make it even feel shorter. Sometimes it just feels more manageable. And mm. so um, I, I love that because it really all, all it's doing, you know, pain is in our brains. Our bodies don't feel pain. It's all in our brains. And so when it's really just giving our brain something to do with the sensation that we're feeling, it's about visualizing it. It's about feeling like we are you know, at least one step ahead of the pain the whole time. And that's honestly what I look out when I'm supporting people in labor Is I'm like, if we're running a marathon and it's between you and the pain, who is winning right now? Is it because if the person in labor is the one that's winning or, or the one that's like one pace ahead, then they're doing great. They're coping well, they're doing awesome. But when I start to see that, like, we're starting to, to, you know, move closer to the realm of maybe suffering and not actually like being in um, not, not necessarily control, but, but being, um, ahead of it, that's when it's like, okay, we need to do something different. We need to change up what's happening. It's the same thing with an impact scene. You know, you can't necessarily use a single tail whip for like the entirety of a scene. You work up to that. You use different toys. You use, uh, you know, your hands, like you, um, if you know the basic anatomy of the human body, you can actually play a lot with it. There's so much that you can do, um, and it's a dance, honestly. I think both experiences are very just movement and dance heavy in terms of the creativity that you kind of have to do mm. and the ways that you have to move your body really intuitively.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about like other things like this comb. I mean, if someone like has a, has a background or experience with BDSM I'm wondering like do people ever want to get like slapped in the face or like punched or something during labor
1: I feel like at least I don't know for most people like for example like slapping in the face that can be like like such like a deep internal trigger I think like that but um, I know people who have like used floggers on their partner like during labor during like early labor Um, like I know people like pinching can be like really Mm -hmm. fun and erotic Um, I think it really just depends on like what kind of energy you want to, you want to invite into your birth space. Um, And there's totally people out there that want to invite their DS dynamic into their birth space or, or invite play or pleasure into the birth space. People don't even think that, you know, pleasure is something that can be had in a labor experience. Um, And, you know, without it, it's like not every, labor is going to be pleasurable. But like what are some ways that we can invite pleasurable sensations into that experience? Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not, you know, just like an impact scene. It's not just like a constant level of pain for several, several, several hours. Like, you know, we if that's how labor was, like babies would not be born. Like society would end flat out. Like that's just not how that happens. Um so so, yeah, I think there's, there's so many ways. Um, and I think part of the reason that I try to be um, just very opening and, you know, being like the sex positive doula is like telling people like, yes, you can have these preferences for your labor. Um, you know, you can totally do that. I um, And I really also want to invite that with providers too, like with midwives, with, with doctors, like how can you be a supportive medical provider, um, by educating yourself on the fact that different people have different interests and different preferences and different, um, fetishes and kinks that might actually be okay to be involved in, in a birth space. Um, and I I have a lot of hope for the future. I know a lot of really amazing student midwives right now who in like five years I know are going to be supporting like, just really badass births. <laughs> so yeah. um I'm I'm feeling really excited for the future of birth and um even just in talking to some people like interviewing and having consults with some people um yeah like there's I feel like our generation, you know, people are starting to have babies and people are starting to to need doulas in that way and I think we're being really creative with the ways that we want to kind of like reclaim birth. In our mm-hmm. own way that feels that feels powerful and feels
0: um accessible. My Patreon is now a community site for DIY self-paced learning. I share assignments, journal prompts, media examples of consent and boundaries, discount codes my own writing on boundaries and consent, the medical industry, and other things that I'm thinking about all the time, I share papers, articles, lectures, and more, and you also get access to the Patreon-only Discord channel. Patreon is a great way to support the show, but there are other ways that don't cost money. You can rate, subscribe, and write a review wherever you listen, and share the show with your friends. All of that is deeply appreciated. I'm currently taking private clients. You can find out more about that in the Work With Me tab on my website, sharetheloadinc.com, and schedule a call to see if we're a good fit. Um, I have another sort of question about this before we move on, which is, do you know, have you had any experience of, like, witnessing someone discover that they're into pain via birth? Ooh, um...
1: Let me think, I don't, th- not yet, um, not quite yet, um, but I do, th- I have seen people just be like really amazed that they did that, like mm-hmm. that they went through that and they survived and not only did they survive, but they were like totally okay, like totally fine, even better. Because they now have a baby, so I I, I, like. I feel like you know, if I stay in this career for some time, which I'm going to, I'm sure that'll eventually happen. Um. I think, you know, something that's really cool about being invited into people's birth spaces is like not only do you get to witness the birth of a baby, but if they're a first-time parent, you get to witness the birth of a parent or a mom Mm. or dad. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something to be said about that, I think. And, and how, um, I don't know, you see people be like, wow, I really didn't know. I didn't think I was capable of that. And that starts like, that's the foundation. That's the very beginning of like, you, like you're going to be saying that phrase for the next 18 years and beyond probably. Cause like, that's what parenting is, is like being like, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know that I, you know, had that in me or could say that or, or do that. Or, you know, it's like parenting is the hardest job in the whole world. Um, and so many people are so terrified of fucking it up and then they don't, and they raise really good kids and Mm -hmm. they're like, I didn't know I could do that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you can. and, And you did, and you are doing it. Um, so I think that's more of like what I've had the privilege of witnessing, Um, but I would really love to maybe see if, if that, if that happens, I'm sure it will. Yeah. (laughs) That's,
0: I mean, I, I, I would bet that there are people who like years later discover that they're into impact play and BDSM, um, and probably like can sort of refer to like childbirth as maybe the seed planting. Yeah. So I wonder if maybe you're not like privy to their process that far down the line or something. Yeah. Who
1: knows? Um, yeah. I think, I think it's also, um, like, you know, the thing always happens where it's like, you know, in labor, uh, you're like, I'm never going to fucking do this again. This sucks. Like, you right. Know, screw this. And then you have a baby in your arms. So you're like, yeah, I could do this again. Like, yeah, it really, it's like happens in a second and you're like, yeah, no, I could totally do this again. So it's like, there's something, that literally happens in the brain that kind of makes you forget how intensive an experience it is. Um, and usually with second and third babies, like the labor is not nearly as bad. So Mm, mm -hmm. that's something also that thanks evolution for that.
0: You know, that's not exclusive to birth. I was thinking about an experience that I had like that where in January I was having like a horrible, um, issue with my gut. And that's common for me, but this was like particularly acute because I was sort of in the process of like killing off something. And so I was like going through the really extreme pain and discomfort of that while simultaneously unknowingly um, consistently eating something over two weeks or so that I didn't realize had something in it that was going to affect me. So I was like, you know, detoxing plus having a real time reaction. And I've, I really, I have little memory of ever being so uncomfortable, um, for about a week and a half. And it's, it was curious to me because I was describing this to someone last week and I was noticing that I honestly can't remember what it felt like. Like, I know that it was horrible. I'm sure that I had, like, I probably had diarrhea. That's just, like, normally what happens. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember anything else. I remember being utterly miserable, and I don't know what it felt like. So I think there is something in our brains that, like, erases the memory of pain.
1: Yeah. And I think specifically, like, non-consensual pain. Oh,
0: interesting.
1: Um, I think, which is why... I think with labor, it could be a little bit different because labor pain is pretty much uniquely the only kind of pain that our bodies experience or people with uteruses experience Mm -hmm. Um, that the pain means that a good thing is happening, that progress is being made, that this is a positive thing. All the other types of pain that we experience in our lifetimes are usually when something is wrong we are, we have an injury, we're sick, like mm-hmm. there's something not good happening. And so I think other than like consensual pain through like BDSM, right. Cause I feel like, at least for me personally, I can totally remember like what the sensations of like certain, um, impact toys like feel on me or like the sensations I felt in like really intense, um, you know, scenes like that. Like I totally can recall that. Cause I think my brain i was like yes i totally want this this is this is great wow Um, so yeah i i think it's it's really interesting um because yeah no i i've i've given a lot of like it's a fun thing to think about of like the difference between like consensual and non-consensual pain
0: well and how it affects your memory that's Mm -hmm. fascinating yeah you know because i wonder i think it must have to do with this thing that you're talking about about being embodied through the pain because Mm -hmm. when you're having a traumatic experience whether it's illness or you know violence at the hands of someone else Mm -hmm. um non-consensually like the self-protection mechanism is to dissociate typically so it's it's intentional that your brain is not remembering it it's to protect you but when you choose it that's so interesting it also brings me to my next question which was Um, I'm curious about how you've brought, where you saw consent, perhaps missing in the birth space that you have brought it in, in your practice. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I could talk about this for
1: a whole, (laughs) this is a whole other, um, topic. Um, I mean, I think just right off the bat, it's really just important to say that Obstetrics is inherently a racist and sexist profession. It's it's an inherently race, racist and misogynistic culture. Um, and, you know, when the foundation of a uh, field of medicine is literally built upon the torture of enslaved Black women, like, we should not at all be surprised that we that the United States is the most dangerous country to give birth in specifically if you are black. Um, so I think, you know, that is the culture that we have and, you know, I'm the biggest advocate of midwifery. I'm literally wearing a shirt that says more midwives. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, but the reality is through capitalism and all this other stuff, you know, most people are going to be giving birth in a hospital under the care of of an obstetrician. and when you have a culture that is uh, inherently dependent on things like non-consensual hierarchies, violence, coercion, um, you know, all of these things like I get surprised when I do see consent happening in those spaces. Um, I, and it, and it's, it's, it's not a, you know, I hate all doctors kind of thing. There are absolutely amazing OBs out there that, are aware of of this culture and are in it so that they don't perpetuate that. But I also think it goes to say that if you have made it to a certain level within that culture, you've had to perpetuate that in some levels. Like that's just the reality um, of being in, in a culture like that. And so, um, it, you know, it's, I think the one of the, the huge things is that people, birthing people are not aware of their rights. Mm. Um, the main, honestly, there's two rights that, that basically just like covers the whole gambit. And that's, um, you know, you have the right to informed consent and informed consent is not a consent waiver. It's a conversation about the benefits, the risks and the alternatives of whatever is being suggested. Um, and then you have the right to refusal. You know, the whole saying is that like, you know if you can't say no, then saying yes doesn't mean anything. Right. So, um, but in this country, and a lot of this has to do with just like the religious aspects of our country and all of that stuff. In this country, a lot of people just assume that once you are carrying another human life in you, that your rights somehow are less than, or get, you know or or trumped by the human life that you are carrying which is not the case. the American college of Obstetrics and Gyne- of obstetricians and gynecologists, like they all say, like, it is, you know, like it is their recommendation that, you know, people should be, a- people are, and should be able to refuse even life-saving medical treatment if that is their choice. Um, and so a lot of people aren't aware of that, but what I hear often in birth spaces specifically in hospitals is we often hear you want a healthy baby, right? or you don't want to hurt your baby. Right. And it's like those two questions to me are so dumb because they are very coercive. Yes. Like, so like in my prenatal appointments with my clients, we go over patients' rights and we talk about what does obstetric violence sound like? And it sounds like those two phrases, which are just ridiculous because what birthing person is trying to harm their baby? No one, like really no one, no one is out there getting pregnant to just try to harm themselves and their baby. That does not happen. Um, if you're seeking, if you're under the care of a medical professional, you obviously care about the health and the safety of you and, and your baby. Um, so those are the phrases that I, that we hear often. I also just hear a lot of, oh, we're just gonna like, not, Hey, is it okay? If we, or would you feel comfortable if I it's the, we're just gonna, we're just gonna check you we're just going to do a vaginal exam or cervical check. Um, we hear that a lot. Like something I have to tell my clients is first of all, the staff works for you, not the other way around. Um, they should work around you and what you need and your comfort. And they're the ones that get to ask you for your permission. You are the one that gets to say, I'm just going to do this. So like, you know, instead of asking like, hey, uh, can I have intermittent fetal monitoring instead of continuous? Um, You say, I would like intermittent fetal, um, you know, fetal monitoring. What, you know, is that possible? Can, you know, we can make that happen. Let's have a conversation about that. Like you are the person that gets to make the demands. They're the people that get to ask the questions. That is what the relationship should be. But the reality is that's not how it's taught to the providers Um, and, you know, the, 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 industrialization of medicine is what fuels this, this standard and this culture. Um, it's, you know, we have. There are X number of delivery rooms in a hospital. There are X number of people on staff, X number of, you know, uh, doctors on call. Um, so it's, it's a numbers game and it's a business, you know, when you have, when you turn healthcare into a business you're automatically putting your bottom line above the lives of people. And um, in terms of ways that at least I, or just doulas in general, you know, have have st- stepped in is, I mean, the first thing is like, you know, we, we try to start from as early as possible. That's why I um, I really love it when people book me months and months and months and months in advance, because that gives me an opportunity to build a relationship with these people. And understand what are their values, what are their goals, who are they as people, how do they communicate, um, when do they feel the most comfortable, what makes them feel uncomfortable, so I can actually gain a full, um, full understanding of who this person is, so that then I can advocate for them in a way that actually feels empowering to them. Um, and so, you know, starting really early on, um, I always, especially for the ones, for the the instances where I'm working really early with someone basically my first prenatal visit with people is talking about, okay, let's talk about how are conversations going with your provider. And that's when I talk about, you know, good bedside manner does not inherently translate to being good at one's job and you can have the nicest doctor in the whole world, but they, but their philosophy about birth might be totally misaligned with your philosophy about birth. And if they're comfortable overseeing an intervention, heavy birth, that's most likely going to be the birth that you're going to have, unless. You have experience in doing some heavy, heavy self-advocacy and advocating for yourself in the middle of active labor is really fucking hard, if not impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard because as doulas, you know, I am absolutely an advocate for my clients. However, the way that the power structure is is you know the way that the power dynamic is structured in these spaces, I don't get listened to you know, but my clients do. So, you know, if my client says, you know, no, I don't want that, then that's when I can be like, Hey, they just said that they don't want that, you know, like, and I, and then I can bolster their voice and make it louder and make sure that their voice has been heard. But what's frustrating is that, um, I have to be really careful and mindful about, um, speaking for my client, because when it comes down to it, I'm trying to make sure my client has an empowered birth experience and you can't have an empowered birth experience. If someone else is speaking for you, you know, most or all of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, there, there are certain, you know, um, scenarios of, you know, like, for example, the perfect, the perfect one is, you know, when, when a PA comes in, is like, Oh, we're just going to check you. I'll look to my client and be like, is it okay if like, would you like a cervical check? And when, so I'll just basically reframe their, I'm just going to as an actual question that they can then say no to. And then, you know, then they could be like, no, actually I don't want that. Or yeah, no, that's totally fine. Um, And then in that case, I would be like, okay, what position would be the most comfortable for you to have this check-in? You know, just really trying to be like, you have autonomy in this situation. You get to say yes or no, like, you know, um, but this culture, it operates, it operates in a very fear-based place, um, and a very litigation fear-based place. Um, cause obstetricians are the most sued doctors out there. Mm. Um, and so the, the fear of litigation is, is a major one that drives a lot of nurses and PAs to make, unfortunately, really bad decisions, um, that, you know, like the, the whole phrase, like, you know, we want a healthy, healthy parent, healthy baby kind of thing, It's like, well, yeah, obviously, you know, what are we here for? Of course we want a healthy parent, healthy baby, but also like, does a traumatic birth experience, is that, is that a part of the recipe for a healthy parent and a healthy baby? I don't think so. Um, I think a traumatic birth experience can really, really impact the health of both the parent and a baby. And it does, we know this, we know that with traumatic birth experiences, postpartum depression and postpartum mood disorders are much higher. We know that. Um, there can be attachment ruptures and attachment trauma with babies and their parents with traumatic birth experience with early separation. So, you know, that's where I'm coming. I'm coming from this place of like, okay, what is the full picture of health? You know, there is physical health. Yes. What about emotional health? What about mental health? What about relational health? You know, all of these things are super important, but are constantly overlooked by medical staff because they don't have. The time the energy the funding the staff the the bodies you know just they just don't have it um and the culture is not structured in a way where they're going to get it
0: Mm -hmm. um so a pa means something very specific in my business what does it mean in your business (laughs) a physician's assistant oh okay okay um so i was sort of noticing i was like tracking as you were describing like the need for self-advocacy Um, that you're sort of like an interrupter in the medical model. Um, I mean, I'm no stranger to the medical industry and how, how horrible and um, damaging it is um, in the sense that, or like rooted in the fact that it's for profit. Um, But I really like thinking about the, like a doula as an advocate, and I'm seeing so many ties between what you're talking about as your work and my work as an intimacy coordinator, there are people in the intimacy coordinator field who use the term doula, and I'm starting to like understand why. Um, I'm also really struck by this idea that what it sounds to me, sounds like to me, is that you're sort of instilling um, confidence, like a sense of confidence and agency in the people that you're supporting, um, in a space where they might feel like they are supposed to defer to someone else's judgment. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, it's, it's, you know, part of it is, um, is explaining to people like, like one thing I talk about often, you know, a doctor patient relationship is a power exchange relationship. You know, you are giving up some of your power to someone who you should trust. You should absolutely trust your doctors. But I think what happens, especially in this country is that we doctors do not have the time in their schedules to actually build relationships with their patients. So they're relying on charts and, you know, data to build a picture, you know, to build a full picture of some of a, of a human being. Um, and that's really hard to do. And so, you know, when people say, oh, I love my doctor, like she's really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like, well, that's great. You know, like I know people that are really nice, but there's a lot of really nice people that I would not trust to make decisions about my body (laughs) like with. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't understand is that a lot of, um, policies in place with, um, you know, OB practices or hospitals and stuff are actually not based in evidence. Once again, they're based in the fear of litigation and they're based in mm. fear of being held liable for outcomes. And a lot of people just genuinely don't know that. They just assume, oh, you're, if you're a doctor, you should be paying attention to the evidence. Um, I think like the perfect example is breech birth. So breech birth, for those of you who don't know, is when a baby is not, face, is not head down but their butt or their feet are presenting first.
0: I was Um, breech and I was a C-section as a result in 1989. Okay, so um, interesting. So
1: basically there was, um, you know, also like there's, there are different factors that might contribute, um, you know, someone's risk factor with, f- with, with a breech birth, there's different breach positionings. Um, like there's one position transverse, which is basically when baby is like sideways, like perpendicular to the cervix and that's just baby babies cannot be born vaginally when they're facing yeah. that way. It's just not possible. So that's a situation where cesarean birth is absolutely life-saving measure. Like without a doubt, like OBs have a place in this system. There are people that, for many, many valid medical reasons, cannot give birth vaginally, and so mm-hmm. the fact that we have the option of cesarean section is amazing. But the issue is that it is far overused, and it's overused because um, because uh, doctors want to have as much control over the birthing process as possible, which is what we come back to, like patriarchy and you know just the misogyny in the, the birth culture, essentially. Um, so like with breach, for example, perfect example. So, um, there was basically a study done in, um, 2000 that essentially was like the sole study that essentially wiped out vaginal breach birth, like effectively. And it was one study that was done that did not just look at low risk birthing people, but it looked at people who are pregnant with multiples. So like twins and triplets, it looked at people who had preeclampsia, Who had um sorry, one second. This is actually Mm my client. Uh Uh-oh. Uh double check to make sure I am good. Okay, cool. We're good. No worries. (laughs) Okay.
0: Almost had to run to a bird. I know.
1: No. Um, yeah. Thank you for the for your patience there. Of Um,
0: course. That would have been kind of exciting. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, so no, normally my my phone is totally on silent, but all my clients get the emergency bypass. So Mm -hmm. um so anyway, so there was a study done in the year 2000 that essentially wiped out vaginal breach birth. Um, and it was basically a meta data, like collect, like they collected data from a bunch of different studies and essentially said that the outcomes for breach babies were better when they were born via C section rather than vaginally. Um, the issue was, is they did not, this was not a study just looking at low risk people. It was including high risk people as well. Um, and it, excluded one of the largest studies on vaginal breach birth, um, that was conducted, I believe in Norway or the Netherlands, I'm blanking on that, but it was conducted in that area of the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, yeah. And so basically from that study, they just decided that they're not going to teach, uh, physicians how to support vaginal breach deliveries anymore, um, and a, a few years after that, there were OBs that basically went, did a deep dive into that research and found that the studies were not, um, structurally, you know, they, they, um, they, they were not actually correct. And when they actually did a meta-analysis of low risk people who had breech babies, they found that the outcomes were actually better, um, birthing vaginally, um, with, a provider who was, you know, trained and competent in supporting vaginal Hmm. birth. So perfect example where, um, or let's say like VBAC. So a VBAC stands for vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, it is safer, uh, for low risk birthing people to attempt a VBAC, um, or to go for a trial of labor, a TOLAC. Um, after a cesarean, um, then it is to schedule a repeat cesarean because the cesarean is major abdominal surgery. There are a lot of risks associated with cesarean birth. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of p- like physicians have almost kind of framed it as the easy way out. Um, because, uh, cause they have a lot of control over that. They have all the control over that. Um, so, you know, when, when I tell people this information that, you know, it's like, I'm not trying, I'm not at all you know, demonizing your doctor saying that they're bad at their job or anything. What I'm saying is that they are a part of a culture that has chosen to ignore evidence for the purpose of profit and patriarchy and control and all of these factors that ultimately do not support birthing people. Um, And um, there's also a serious, serious diversity issue in obstetrics. Um, There are not nearly enough um doctors of color, um, you know, OB's of color who um you know, who are working in this field. Um and I think that yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's really um it's really jarring when when you learn that information for the first time. Um and uh yeah, no it's it's really yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of you learn as a doula that you're just like, oh my God, this is huge. How did I not know this? And
0: and yeah, and you just get exposed to, to all of that. Wow, well, gosh, thank you for all of that backstory. I really appreciate this um, distinction between being evidence-based versus making decisions out of a fear of litigation. I think that that's a distinction that a lot of people aren't aware of.
1: Yeah. And something I also, you know, I try to um, frame it in a way where, you know, if there's a nurse at a hospital and you're advocating for like intermittent fetal monitoring, which is the standard of care for low risk people, and they want to put you on a continuous monitor, you know, they might be coming from a place of trauma and they might've just witnessed a really bad outcome and they're terrified of you having that outcome. So it's not coming from, you know, we can, we can still have these conversations about this culture and still bring compassion and empathy into these conversations and really think about what have these people gone through, you know, like get residency is really hard and is really, really grueling. Nursing school, clinical hours is grueling. And it's really important. I think that we take into account, you know, that this is, again, this is not just an individual issue. These are not People who set out to do their jobs poorly, or to be violent, or you know, like these are people that honestly probably got into these fields for the right reasons, um, and have probably witnessed a lot of shit that no one should really have to witness, um, and they bring that into their work and into different people's birth spaces, um, and so I think that's just something I I also want to add to because. I don't at all want to, you know, diminish how difficult this work is, especially for people who are working 12 or even 24 hour shifts. Um, that's really, really taxing and really hard um, on someone's body and on someone's mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm excited to ask you my sort of wrap up question here, because I'm really curious what you're going to say. Um, my question is, can you share three, whether it's like pieces of media conversations you've had, um, people you've known experiences, three things, influences in your life that shaped the way that you think today? Ooh.
1: Okay. Let's see. (sighs) funny. Uh, you caught me on a day. I, I recently been doing some, uh, or starting to do some like deep inner child work with my therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say without a doubt, one of those experiences, it's traumatic experience, but there's obviously a lot of growth there. So a lot of people don't know this, but my dad had a traumatic brain injury in 2011. Um, actually I'm approaching the 10 year anniversary of it in three days. Um, and that experience was incredibly traumatic for me and my family, but, um, there was an immense amount of growth that happened. And I think that is an experience that, um, particularly shaped my, um, ability to hold space. And I think it's a huge reason. Like if we, if I really dug down why I became a doula and why I am a doula, um, and I had to grow up very, very fast in a matter of moments. And I also learned the importance of, of holding space for people and how powerful that can be through holding space for my mom and also her doing the same with me or other people doing the same thing with me during that time. So I would say that was probably, that was, that's, a, that's a huge monumental moment for me in my life. Um, ooh, let's see, what else? Um, mm. oh damn, I wish I like had
0: like three just like easy answers to just like pull up. um, it's okay. You can say... take your time, but also probably the three that just like come to mind with the least resistance are, are yeah.
1: good um. I would probably say um, there's a musical artist that I really love, Um, his name's Lido. And he, after I left theater school, I kind of like rejected like art and like for, for a long time. Like I was just, after being so surrounded by like creativity and art and like music and all this stuff, I like just really needed a hard, hard break from it all. Um, and a couple years after leaving theater school, that's when I like discovered his music and it made me fall in love with like music theory again, which was something that I really loved before. Um, and cause he's like such a huge theory nerd and just like beautifully is able to like craft experiences into his music and messages through music, um, into his work. So, um, just his whole his whole, um, body of, of music has been, um, a a safe haven for me in a lot of times. Um, and it's one of those things that I'll just like re-listen to the same albums at different periods in my life and find new meaning in it during those different periods. Um, and that's something that I just like, I'll always come back to. Um, I, I'm not usually someone to get like tattoos of like music artists and stuff, but he was one where I was like, yeah, no, that's, I need that. Um, so I would say like his music is, is really powerful and monumental for me. Um, and then I'm going to go with my mom, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My mom has been, um, like, I, I feel like our relationship is, I have a really secure relationship with my mom. And it's one of those things where it's like, even though we've gone through, you know, emotional difficulties and, you know, rocky times or times where I felt more distant from her and stuff like that. It's like, she's my mom and I can always just like come back to her, you know, and stuff. And like, I really love the relationship that I have with her nowadays. Um, and I feel like I've been able to invite her being, um, a really awesome safe Haven for me, especially in doula work. She always loves hearing about all the births that I go to. Um, even the really bad ones, like she'll, she's usually the first person that I call. If I just out of a traumatic birth experience and just need event, vent like she's here for it um so i would say yeah she's and she's just she's badass like she's badass and powerful and like she's amazing i yeah mama bush is the best
0: <laughs> mama bush yeah mama bush <laughs> cool well thanks so much this has been really um informative and really gotten my brain kind of Firing on all cylinders. So I'm yeah, excited thank to you keep for having me. Yeah. Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, so I'm most
1: active on Instagram at the Sex Positive Doula. Um, if you're interested, if you are in the New York area and are interested in um, booking me for doula services, you can go to my website, um, which is Cory Bush i'm on twitter at the sex doula um i have a tiktok too i think it's just the sex positive doula (laughs) um yeah yeah instagram is probably the best way to connect so please feel free to reach out i would love to hear from you
0: cool you can find me on instagram and twitter at consent wizard the show is produced and edited by stella hartman beginning and ending music is by me there's Sometimes Other Music by my friend Tyler Field. The podcast logo is by Candace Ploy Goodman. For contact information for these exceptionally talented people, or to ask a question about boundaries and consent that I'll answer on the show, you can email podcast at sharethelodeinc.com.